Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the last Sunday of the year. Welcome to the last day of 2023. I don't know if you feel this way, but I do. The older I get, the faster it goes. I remember being your age, like, I don't know, two years ago, it feels like. Sometimes I act like it was just two years ago. And I couldn't wait to grow up. Like, I couldn't wait to adult. And now that I've got a daughter who's graduating this year, she thinks adulting sounds terrible. It is, uh, <laughs> I got a hearty amen right here. How many of you historically make New Year's resolutions? Okay, raise your hand. If you've made historically, if you've made res all right, resolutions, all right. How many of you already have resolutions for the coming year? Well, listen, with today being the last day of the year and the last Sunday of the year, I thought it would be fitting that we look at how we head into the new year and I thought that, man, I'd like, I was just curious to know if the top resolutions over the years have changed at all. And so I did some research this week and found multiple articles. I'm not going to cite any one article because this is really a collective of information. But a majority of them had all of the same 10 that were in their top, just kind of oriented differently. So here are five of the top New Year's resolutions every year. The first one, save more, spend less. How many of you have ever made that resolution that you were going to save more money and spend less money? We make that resolution about twice a week. <laughs> hey, you know, we're going, to, we're going to save more and we're going to spend less. And we try all kinds of ways. We've gone with the cash system. We've done Financial Peace University. We've gone with Joe Sengel. I was broke. Now I'm not and I'm still broke. So we are, we, we, we are a family that historically looks at this and says, you know, we'd love to save more and spend less. Number two on the list is to quit smoking. Actually, coupled with smoking was also drinking. Going into the new year that we're going to quit a habit is really what it amounts to, that there's a bad habit that you want to kick, that you want to get rid of. And smoking and drinking are two of the most desirable things to stop when it comes to resolutions. Number three, get into shape. Become more physically fit. Uh, I have a really good friend who is the owner of Anytime Fitness. And from now until February, the end of February, business will increase and people will come into the gym and they will take more selfies sitting on more equipment and having more conversations. I mean, <laughs> if that's you, I hear the YMCA is looking for people to come work out there. Uh, the third, or excuse me, the fourth would be to uh, kind of fall in line with this is to lose weight, to change your diet or nutrition. You step on that scale after Thanksgiving and Christmas, and you decide, you know what, January 1, that's it. I'm, I'm going to lock it in. I'm gonna, and you go on some iteration of a diet, the Atkins diet, the carnivore diet, the uh, paleo diet. Aren't they all the same thing, I think? You just eat meat, and, and that's the solution to it. But it, the, the, kind of the, the whole of it is that you want to lose weight. And finally, uh, is to spend more time with family. To be more intentional about the time that you set aside with the ones that you love and you care about. I was looking at why historically 90% of every resolution made at the onset of a new year will fail or falter before January, excuse me, before the end of February. And there are five reasons that I saw consistently. Number one is a lack of clarity. Going into whatever it is you're resolving to change or uh, look different in your life, there's too much ambiguity surrounding it. There's not enough clarity around it, and so you don't really have a whole grasp of what you're trying to do. Number two is a lack of accountability. That's a big one. If you've got somebody in your corner that's holding you accountable, is checking on you, that maybe is walking through whatever it is you're trying to change in your life, that's a big one. The third one is a lack of structure. Like you're not specific enough about how you're going to do what you want to do. You say, I'm going to quit smoking, but how are you going to quit smoking? You say, I'm going to lose weight, but how are you going to lose weight? You say, I'm going to spend less money and save more, but how are you going to spend less and save more? It's a lack of structure. The fourth is a lack of understanding what it's really going to take. We look at media and how they glamorize all of these changes, and it looks so easy when other people are doing it. Losing weight looks really easy when the fitness influencers are doing it. But when it comes to the hunger cravings and the people around you that are selfish and eat Reese's peanut butter cups when you can't, 
go back to that accountability piece. So as of January 1st, my whole family is on a diet. <laughs> but they don't need to lose weight. But I do. And if it's in the house, I'll eat it. Point in case, I sat down the other night, a third of a costco size Jif extra crunchy peanut butter, which the second ingredient is sugar, I took a long teaspoon and I ate the third, the whole third that was left. And then I got mad at Stacy. Why do we even have this in the house? <laughs> that happened. And then finally, we're focused on the wrong thing. Like we're actually trying to change for the wrong reasons or we're focused on the wrong thing. And that is what we're going to be looking at today is our focus. With resolutions in mind, I thought, you know what, a fitting into the year, if we look at a resolution and how we can further our faith in the coming year. And so if I were to give today's message a title, it would be that. It would be resolution, furthering your faith in 2024. Because as I think about things that are important, as I think about the things that are most important, I cannot think of anything more important than your faith. As a follower of Jesus, than your relationship with Jesus Christ and your faith as a follower. So we're going to jump in together today. Why don't you grab your Bibles? Grab your Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, would you please raise your hand? We've got ushers that are going to come around our worship center right now from every side. And they would love to take this opportunity to bring you a Bible. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 3. Today we're going to look at Philippians chapter 3 and we're going to spend time in verses 1 through 14. For those of you avid note takers, I do want to give you a bit of a favor up front. There's going to be some parallel passages. Toward the end, we're going to look at Psalm 139 and we're going to look at James. And then we're going to come back full circle to Philippians 3. But we're going to be spending a majority of our time together today in Philippians chapter 3, specifically verses 1 through 14. If you're not sure where you, to find that, I encourage you to go to the front of your Bible where you will find a table of contents and it will give you the books of the Bible, Old and New Testament, along with a page number. And you can find Philippians and the page number associated there. As we jump in, let's start our time together in prayer. Oh, well, well God, it's good to be together in this place this morning. I thank you so much for this season of celebration where we have set aside time in our lives and specifically in our worship to acknowledge and to remember and to celebrate your birth. The greatest gift humanity will know in the person of Jesus. Lord, thank you for this time that we get to spend together today. That here on the last day of the, the year, it's fitting that we find ourselves studying your word, preparing our hearts, and readying ourselves for what's in front of us. Holy Spirit, as we spend time in your word today thinking about what's to come, I pray that you would help us to lament and reflect on where we've been. And allow what you've done already in our lives to encourage us and to influence us and to inform us as we step into a whole new year. Right now, Lord, I want to take a minute to pray for every church in our community and around our community whose pastors are going to preach a God-centered, gospel-focused message. Holy Spirit, we invite your presence to pour out fresh and new. And I pray that as your word goes out, all over the place, that it will not return void, not the least of which is right here in this space. Lord, I humble myself to you, and I want to do nothing more than to clearly convey your word. I recognize that you don't need me to do that, but um, Lord, I, I ask that you would use me, and that I would decrease and that you would increase all the more. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be received as a gift, holy and pleasing to you alone, our rock and redeemer. And the whole church said, amen. amen. We're going to read verses 12 through 14 to start off. He says, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection. But I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I've not achieved it. But I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Would you believe it if I told you that these would be some of the final words that the Apostle Paul would pin to his friends and fellow followers of Jesus in Philippi and the surrounding region, which would then make its way over 
thousands of years to where we are here today reflecting on those words. Why? Because the Apostle Paul is writing from prison in Rome. He's under house arrest. He's not free to go. He's literally chained 24 hours a day to a centurion guard. Every eight hours, a new guard, he's in chains. This man can't even go to the bathroom in privacy. He has got someone who is with him always. He's not free to come and go. Now, we know historically that he's staying in a rented house. We know historically, as you read the acts of the early church and the apostles and some of Paul's other letters, that while he's in prison, under house arrest, awaiting trial in Rome, that he would have visitors that would come to spend time with him and that he would preach the gospel. And I imagine that while circumstantially most of us would look at being in chains, specifically tied to another human being 24 hours a day as a negative, I almost believe in my spirit that Paul found a way to make that circumstance a positive. Because every time he would have a visitor or every time he would be in the collection of a community, Paul was presenting the gospel. He was telling people about Jesus Christ and how on the way to Damascus, he was set out to create what you and I might consider a genocide. He was literally looking to annihilate, kill, arrest, and get rid of everybody who followed Jesus. They were known as followers of the way. That might sound like an interesting term. Where do we get that term, followers of the way? Well, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And so early adopters of the faith were identified as followers of the way. Jesus was the way and they were following him. Therefore, these Christians, these little Christ followers were pursuing him. And Paul was on his way, dead set on eradicating all followers of the way. As he's on his way with permission from the highest authority to arrest, kill, and eradicate followers of the way, he's there with companions and he has this radical encounter with Jesus. And we know that he's thrown to the ground, that he is blinded by this incredible light, which we know is the very presence of Jesus Christ. And he says, Jesus, that is, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus Christ, the one that you're, you're set on getting rid of. He's led into Straight Street in Damascus, and there he's going to fast, and he's going to pray for three days until a man named Ananias comes to him. And he lays his hands on him, knowing that his life was on the line because Saul had legal authority to arrest and even kill this man. He says, Brother Saul, God has a plan and a purpose for your life. He's going to use you. And immediately scales fell from his eyes, and he broke his fast and he ate and he was baptized and he goes into a place of sharing this transformation story and then into the study in his life. So I imagine that during his final days, during his final hours, the Apostle Paul is reflecting on the whole of his life. Unlike you and I, where we aren't sure when our time will come to an end, Paul was. He had been arrested multiple times. He had been released and freed. He had ended up back in Rome, and now he's under house arrest. And he knows, he knows that the end is what's in front of him. What would you do with your time and your intellectual energy if you knew that your time was running out? As you think about the whole of your life, wouldn't you process where you had been those mile markers in your life that have informed where you're at today, how you got here and who was influential in those spaces of your life. It may not seem like much of a gift, but I really believe with all of my heart that getting to reflect over the course of your life about where you've been, where you're at, and where you know with certainty you're going because of the, the salvation work of Jesus is a gift and I think it's a gift that every one of us needs to implement and apply and put into practice in our lives. And I can't think of a better platform to do that than the end of the year, the last Sunday, the last day of the year, where we can look back over the course of this year and really over the course of our lives and reflect on the person and the power of Jesus, good, bad, or indifferent. Now, listen, we, we look at this, and we're going to get into this text in just a moment, and it's really easy to do when things are going well, when you've had a good year. But what about when circumstances are less than ideal? I still think that not only do we have an opportunity, but we have an obligation to reflect on how good God is in the midst of difficult circumstances. Do you know that if I were to give the book of Philippians a, a heading... I would actually use the word joy. 
Paul is going to talk about this word over and over and over and over again. He's going to talk about joy. Now, how can you write about joy when you are chained knowing that you're about to have your head cut off because of your faith? You're going to be persecuted. And at one time, you were the greatest persecutor. That what you set out to do will be done to you. I imagine much like Haman who set out to kill Mordecai when he realized that the death he had set out for his adversary was now upon him. Paul looks at this and in this space, the irony of that. And yet he can still talk about joy because our joy is not an emotion. Our joy is a, is a state of being and it only happens through the person of Jesus and it's not circumstantial. Somebody needs to hear that this morning. Your joy is not circumstantial. We need to stop conditioning ourselves to believe that joy is a byproduct of things that go well or that are good. Because regardless of circumstances, I know this to be true. God is good. He is sovereign. He is in control. He has got all things in heaven and on earth in control. And so with the final words that Paul writes, he's going to reflect over the course of his life, and we're going to lean into some of his reflections. Let's go back to verse 1. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Knowing where he's at, kind of some of the culture and context, check this out. He says, whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Can you imagine that? When you're at the bottom of life's ladder, like you're on, the, you're on the bottom rung, being able to look at others around you and say, you know what? Rejoice. And we rejoice for two reasons. Paul makes it really clear here. Number one, we rejoice to give glory to God. And number two, to build others up around us. Have you known someone who's gone through life's circumstances that were tremendously difficult and yet somehow they managed joy in the midst of all of it? Brad Ventura. 21 years old, he was a student at Oregon State University studying to be a registered nurse. Decided he wanted to be a nurse in oncology because as a freshman in college, he discovered a sarcoma, a tumor in his body. And he began to fight and fight hard he did. And he did it with such tremendous joy that he ended up on multiple shows he danced his way through chemotherapy and treatment. They recorded it, and he even found a segment on the Ellen DeGeneres show. He sang his way through all of this. And I'll never forget when Brad, through his treatments, uh, we went through a pretty rough winter in Oregon. I think we had like an inch and a half of snow, and they shut everything down. Uh, I was a college young adult pastor at the time. Brad and his sister Kristen were in my college young adult ministry. We had over 100 students gathering every single Thursday night for what we called the inn. And we'd gather for worship and we had a lot of things in common, not the least was cheesy boy band songs. Now growing up, this is going to surprise some of you, but I was a huge New Kids on the Block fan. Like the original New Kids on the Block, not NKOTB. And one of my favorite songs growing up was The Right Stuff. And there is some moves to that where you grab your belt and you go, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> about half of you have no idea what I'm talking about. About half of you wish that you had no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> you had the Jordan Knight poster on your wall, you liar. Maybe Donnie, I don't know. They used a VHS camcorder. And they recorded this skit for me. It was for a Christmas gift. And it was on the stage at our church, and they, they recorded the whole of the song, dancing in all the moves and different parts. of I mean, it was incredible what they did. Three months before Brad died, he was declared cancer-free. And they went to do a routine follow-up and found that the cancer had quickly and radically invaded his body again. Out of options, he sang and danced his way into eternity. And on his celebration of life at his memorial service, over 700 people attended the memorial service. We packed out our worship center about the same size as this and we fit 525 in here and we had overflow all over the place. 
one of the coolest moments of my life when I got to officiate that Celebration of Life service was they played the video that they had recorded and up on the stage, every member of the band that had done that were up on stage except where Brad was standing. It was empty and yet it felt so full. Why do I share that story with you? Because the whole time that I knew Brad, I knew him three years. I don't know that one day of those three years was easy for him. And yet you would have never known that he was struggling because he put his whole trust and his whole faith in Jesus and not his circumstances. And others, because of Brad's life, were, were edified. They were built up because of the way he handled life's difficulties and circumstances. Does that mean that I think Brad enjoyed what he went through? No. Do I know like I know like I know with every fiber of my being that Brad did everything he could to become cancer-free and healthy? Yes. Yeah, we prayed earnestly, faithfully, brought him before the elders, anointed him with oil. We, we, we bathed that boy in prayer. He went to prayer services and healing services and did every kind of treatment you could. And yet still in the end, the Lord chose to take him. But he didn't do so begrudgingly. He went with joy in his heart. And it, to this day, here I am, almost 20 some odd years later, and it still has an impact in my life. How you live your life, let me say this, this way. How we live out our faith in the midst of life's circumstances should bring glory to God and good to others around us. We may not be able to change our circumstances, but we do have an option with how we choose to face those things in our lives. Verse two, watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we worship by the spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I, I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. Sounds a little arrogant, doesn't it? It is. And we'll get into the whole of that in just a second. What's going on in Philippi now, 10 years later, Paul had established this church. It's the first church that really takes off and gains this, this, this movement that is impacting other communities around them. There are these false teachers that are coming in. There's a group known as the Judaizers. These are zealous, God-fearing Jews who believe in the work and the person of Jesus, sort of. They would put it like this. Jesus, yes, but your works are necessary for salvation. Like you need Jesus, but you also need works for salvation. Now we know the whole of the text, the text says that we are saved by grace through faith and not by works so that none of us can boast. But we also know that the counterpart to that is in James where the brother of Jesus says, listen, we're saved by grace through faith, but your works though not necessary for salvation, are a direct byproduct of your salvation. Like, we know that you're saved because of how you live your life. We know you're saved because of the spiritual gifts that are going to flood through you and how you're going to apply them in your own life and the lives of those around you. These Judaizers would come in and they'd say, listen, if you really want to be saved, you've got to be circumcised. And they're bringing this message to a Gentile group. That wasn't a part of their culture. That wasn't a part of their history. They hadn't signed up for that. Imagine that membership class. Hey, welcome to church uh, today. If you want to be a member, you got to get circumcised. You would see membership in that church dwindle quick, fast, and in a hurry. But that's what these Judaizers were doing. They were saying, yeah, no, Jesus is really good. I'm glad that you encountered Jesus. That's great, but you now need to be circumcised. Why? Well, because... According to their history and their heritage, their own standards, their way of being, there was this covenant commitment between Yahweh and the nation of Israel, these Hebrews, that on the eighth day they would be circumcised and this would be a physical sign, an outward appearance that would set them apart as different or distinct from all the other nations. And so what God intended as a good thing, but never to replace salvation, they took and they made a superimposition on others. Church, I, I really hope that we don't do that. That we don't take our traditions and superimpose them on the church or on others around us as though they're somehow necessary for a right relationship with Jesus or for salvation or even to make you a better follower of Jesus. And we can do it in some subtle ways too. 
We can have our convictions about alcohol, for instance. I've talked about this several times over the years. I, I choose to abstain from alcohol for, for, for a couple of reasons. Number one, like, I'm too cheap to pay for that kind of stuff. It's true. Number two, they say that alcohol is an acquired taste. Why would I ever want to acquire that taste? Anything that's going to burn your throat or taste bitter and disgusting, wow, you get used to it. Why? But the bigger issue for me is I'm an addict. Church, I have an addictive personality. Like inherently, that's how I was from the time I was a little kid. I'm a pendulum guy. Like I'm all in or I'm all out. And, And if you've ever gone out to eat with me, you know that I drink water like a camel. They literally by about the second or third refill just bring the jug and set it down in front of me. Can you imagine if I drank alcohol? Like, and I'm a big guy too, 6'1", 215. Like, I don't, I would imagine. The long story short is it's expensive, it tastes gross, and I'm an addict. So I choose not to drink alcohol. But how wrong would it be for me to tell you as your pastor that if you drink alcohol, you're sinning and going to hell, or that you're somehow less than as a follower of Jesus? The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible literally doesn't say anywhere that you can't drink alcohol. What the Bible does say is that you cannot become a drunkard, that you should not become drunk on wine. Why? Because you look stupid, and you act foolish, and you do things that are not consistent with Christ. You allow a chemical to alter your mind and to change your, 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 your body. And so you're not honoring your faith. You're not honoring Christ because it's altering your behaviors. Some of you in here this morning, you shouldn't drink. Not because biblically you're unable to, but because physically you're unable to. You make really poor decisions. You, you get liquid courage and you say things that either A, you would never say with a sober mind, or B, you forgot that you said to begin with, and you're damaging relationships. Then you're hurting your body. And you're doing damage to your bank account. Like there's just some of you who do drink that you probably shouldn't. But there are others of you who are holding on to alcohol as an example with legalism in your heart saying, well, if you drink, you're just not, uh, uh, you know, I uh, just don't know about that. Stop it. If you're going to formulate an argument, please use the whole of the scriptures. That's just one example. We could give many, many, many more. And so what he's dealing with here are these Judaizers who are coming in, and they're saying, Jesus is good, but you also need to be circumcised. Like, you've got to do these things. There's this regiment. There's 613 laws you've got to follow, and there's these traditions you've got to uphold. And he calls them dogs. He says, watch out for those dogs. It's funny because Gentiles were actually considered dogs by the Pharisees. So he's using a twist of words and applying it toward their own people. Now, he goes on to say, look, if anybody has reason to be really proud of themselves, I do. Let's look at why. He's going to give six distinct reasons of why he has reason to be really proud of the way he lived his life. Verse Verse five, excuse me. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. Number one, I am a pure blooded citizen of Israel Number two, in a tribe of Benjamin, which was considered an elite tribe because the first king of Israel comes from the tribe of Benjamin, Saul. Well, there's three, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a a member of the Pharisees. There's number four, this religious elite group who demanded the strictest obedience to Jewish law. And I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. There's number five. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. 365 prohibitions, 248 mandates. And Paul says that he obeyed all 613 laws perfectly. As human effort goes, Paul is about as perfect as anyone will ever be. And he's telling the whole of the church, guys... Like if anybody has a leg to stand on when it comes to superimpositions of the faith and what you need to do to be a better better person, a better follower of Jesus, I do. And my my life is the standard. My life is the example. Don't take my word for it. Look at the whole of my life. Like I'm not a hypocrite. I'm not telling you to do something that I wouldn't do. It's not do what I say, not as I do. It's literally look at my life. He says this as an example. Verse 7. 
Now listen to this, verse 7. Remember, this, this, is, this is his letter, his final letter. He's, he's going through lamenting the whole of his life and he's thinking about things that have happened to him and where he's at and where he's going. Verse 7 says, I once thought these things were valuable. The six things that we just mentioned about his heritage and his obedience to the law and his persecuting the church, all of those things. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing. That word knowing is where we get the word gnosis. That word knowing is an experiential knowledge. I'm not learning wisdom from your experiences. This is personal experience that I've gained through how I've lived it and, and I've experienced it. And he says, I've experienced Jesus. That's what he's saying. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of experiencing or knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ, and I want to experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. The whole of this text is the value that the Apostle Paul finds in the work of salvation. When we think about salvation... We should think about salvation as the overarching theme in three parts. Part one of salvation is what's known as justification. Justification, broken down, distilled down to the most common understanding is simply this. Justification is just as if I had never sinned. Justification is being made right or righteous from your sins. Justification is that place where Romans 3.23 says, for all of us have sinned and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Romans 6.23 tells us that the consequence, the direct result from that sin, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now sin separates us from God. And the only way that we can overcome that is through what is known as salvation by justification. Where Jesus takes on for the whole of humanity the sins once and for all. Past, present, and future. For those who will believe in their heart and confess with their mouth and by faith acknowledge and invite Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord. And if you're not sure about sin, we actually taught on this just a few weeks ago, but I want to give it to you quickly. Sin stands for separation from God. I stands for enmity toward God or hatred toward God. And N stands for navigation away from the things of God. Sin is quite literally juxtaposed to Christ in every way. So as Paul looks at the whole of his life, he recognizes that, man, I, as sin goes, I was, he actually calls himself the chief sinner, the greatest sinner of all. So here he's celebrating salvation through justification. The second part of salvation is what's known as salvation by sanctification. Sanctification is the continuing work of and we're going to get to that here actually in verse 13 and 14. But sanctification, if you were to draw this out on a continuum, sanctification would be up and to the right. This is where Paul in Romans chapter 7, when he says, why do I do the things that I don't want to do? What a wretched man I am. Who can save me from this life of misery? Praise God. The answer is Jesus Christ. And he goes on before and after to talk about sin, and specifically in Romans chapter 6, that since we're dead to sin and alive in Christ, should we continue to sin? He says, absolutely not. Don't sin anymore. So sanctification is this daily dying to self. Romans 12.1, Romans 12.2, that we should 
We should offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. For this is our spiritual act of worship, that we should not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Then we will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Romans 12, 1 and 2. That is a part of the sanctification process. I'm not where I need to be. I'm not where I've been, but I'm in process. Do you know who's experiencing sanctification right now? The whole of all of us in here who have professed Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Like you're all in process. Like give yourself a break. Like you're in process. That process doesn't mean that you're not going to make mistakes because you're going to make mistakes. It doesn't mean that you should go make mistakes. It doesn't mean that like, it's, it's not a free pass to go and do what you want because you got this get out of jail free card because Jesus paid past, present, and future sins. Like if anything, because of the radical grace of Jesus and his salvation, that should keep us from wanting to sin all the more. Like why would we want to make a mockery of that radical salvation work of Jesus? Why would we even want to get close to the line? Wouldn't we want to steer away from it as much as we possibly can? And so he talks about that. And then the third part of sanctification is what's known as glorification. So you've got justification, just as if I'd never sinned, sanctification, work in process. What is glorification? Salvation through glorification is when we are made perfect, whole, right, and complete. This takes place when either we are no longer present on this rock, this side of eternity. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so you experience what's also known as perfection when you're with him, where there's no more sorrow, no more weeping, no more gnashing of teeth, no more temptation, no more sin, no more struggle. Or at the point in which Jesus comes back and he calls all the saints unto himself, we will be glorified in perfect bodies, free from sin, free from brokenness free from life's circumstances. Paul is looking over the whole of his life. And he's thinking about where he's been. And he's thinking about where he's at. And he is readying himself. In fact, I believe he's ready. And he's helping others around him to get ready for what's to come. Verses 12, 13, and 14, which is where we started, is where we're going to finish today. Verse 12 Paul says very clearly, like, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, right? That's called progressive sanctification. But I press on, like I've got work to do. I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed in me. Like he, he possessed me, Jesus is perfect, and because of his perfection, as I follow Jesus, as I, as I, as I die to myself, and as I align my, 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 my mind, my will, and my emotions with the person of Jesus, th then I'm pursuing perfection. Not so that I can be perfect so you can say, look at me, but perfection because Christ is perfect and he first possessed me. And I want to be like Jesus, so I want to learn to model my behaviors and my attitudes and my attributes after the person of Jesus. And he was perfect in every way. And so I want to be perfect, not because I want to be perfect, but because Jesus was perfect and I want to be in Jesus. Verse 13, no, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it. There's a, 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 a tradition, theologically, a part of the holiness movement. The Wesleyan church that's where John Wesley, who is the founder of the Methodist movement and in-kind denominations since, introduced a theological understanding of what's known as Christian perfection. And the idea is that because we have the person of the spirit at work in us, that we can actually know perfection this side of eternity. And while I really appreciate that that understanding. And while I actually do believe with all my heart in the perfectness of the person of the Holy Spirit at work in us, you have to always consider humanity that interplays with the Spirit. The more that we die to ourselves and surrender to the Spirit, the less that we will sin and be children of mistakes. But the reality is, the Scripture teaches like even at our very best, our best is like filthy rags before God. And so Paul recognizes that. Paul, 
who says, if anybody has right to brag about being perfect, it's me. I'm perfect. Look at all that I've done in my life. Verse 13, he's in, he's in process, sanctification. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing. Remember I told you of the, the, the top five resolutions that people make every year. There was five reasons that people don't follow through with them. Number one, they don't have accountability. You know, not, not in this order, but no accountability. They weren't realistic, uh, too ambiguous, those kinds of things. But the biggest reason is because they're focused on the wrong thing. They're focused on, I'll give you an example. People come to me often and they'll ask me how I got in, in shape, physically fit. Because if you know my story, you know that I used to be morbidly obese. At one time, the, la the heaviest I ever saw on the scale and then I got too embarrassed to weigh myself after that was 336 pounds. I'm 215 pounds right now as I stand before you. And they ask me, like, how did you do that? Did you, did you work out a lot? Like, what's your workout? What's your, what's your routine? And I can tell them all day long. Well, Monday is, is a push day. It's chest and triceps with a little bit of shoulders. And Tuesday is back and biceps with abs. Wednesday is legs. I typically skip that day. Thursday is a day off. Friday, I start all back over with, uh, I do high, I do, you know, heavy weight and, and, and lower reps at the front end of the week. And then I, I, in the back end of the week, I'll do higher reps, lower weight. And, and, I'll, and so I go through this whole thing. And I, so they'll try it, but then they'll not see any change. I've written whole programs for people. When I talk to them about nutrition being 80% of it, did you know that? Of the whole of your health, 80% of your problem is not what you do with the weight, but what you put in your face. Like the biggest push-up I ever did was the one away from the table. That's, 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 that's my downfall. Like I've never had a problem in the gym. I've never had a problem with athletics or, or being you know, physically fit or active. I'm an active guy. I don't sit down. I don't rest. And I remember that part where I told you about the, the pendulum, where I'm all in or all out. I have a confession that I need to make to you right now. On Thanksgiving, my wife Stacy made five apple pies. Three? Three, I don't know. There was a lot. Three apple pies. Okay, three. I just lied. I'm sorry. I had another confession. Three. Three. Thank you for saying something. I, I don't want to get that wrong. I appreciate it. I mean, at least I don't preach a whole sermon with a zipper down and nobody says anything. That's happened before. <laughs> if you were here for that service, shame on all of you. I haven't forgiven you yet. <laughs> if you go backstage, the, there's a great big bright yellow sign right at the door, right at the top of the door jam that says, check your zipper. <laughs> Thank you. So on Christmas or Thanksgiving, my wife made three apple pies and I gave myself permission to eat some apple pie. And so I took a fork and I ate one entire pie in one sitting. That's eight pieces. And before the night was over, I ate half of another pie. That is 12 pieces of apple pie. I'm a pendulum kind of guy. Like I'm all in. And my wife kind of looked at me and said, you're going to save any for anybody else? And I said, I'm thinking about it. And I went to bed questioning all of my life's decisions that night, <laughs> knowing that I had sinned because I willingly walked into gluttony and knowing that the ramification of the sugar that I put in my body, I don't eat sugar like 350 days a year. I ate so much sugar that like I think I was a, a diabetic for a day. It was insane. Night sweats and just miserable. That's how I got to be so big was just, I just, I I, I, yeah, I, Paul looks at this and he says, guys, you're focused on the wrong thing. When it comes to fitness, you can go to the gym all you want, but if you're not willing to change your diet, your nutrition, like adjust your macros, your proteins, your fats, and your carbohydrates, and then macro timing as far as like when you eat them and, 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 and why you do that, then, then it really, the, the benefit isn't going to be there for you. And Paul talks about this focus. He said, I don't consider myself to have achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past. Someone needs to circle that or highlight that right now. Because that is the tool, that is the instrument that the enemy is using to keep you from your present or the potential of your purpose. I want to say that again, because if there's a sound bite that you take today, maybe it's this one. The enemy is using your past to keep you from what God has for you in the present or the potential of your purpose. 
You're so caught up in the mistakes that you've made and in your past behaviors and attitudes and words and relationships that you, you're afraid to even take a step of faith. You know, we talk about leaps of faith all the time. Well, well, Amy talked about it just a few weeks ago when she talked about Mary and Joseph and this radical movement of Jesus. And she said it wasn't a leap of faith, it was a step of faith. But too often, most of us are afraid to even start to take that step because either one, we won't let go of our past, or two, we're afraid of being found out. We're afraid of being found out. And the enemy has got you paralyzed because of your past. Don't let your past keep you from what God has you in this present, has for you in this present, or the potential of your purpose. Like, like don't just think about that. Write that down if you're able to. Don't let the enemy use your past to keep you from the fullness of what God wants to do in your present or the potential of your purpose. Like what God can do in you and through you. That's what he says. Now, this is the one thing I've done. I forgot the past, looking forward to what lies ahead. What lies ahead for him, you guys? He's in chains, locked up to a guard. What lies ahead for him is death. He's going to become a martyr. He's going to be persecuted for his faith. And he says, this one thing I do, I forget the past and I look forward to what lies ahead. And then he takes it and he doubles down. And when he says, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Jesus Christ is calling us. Like he wants to know faith to the fullest, even the persecution piece. So there are three lessons that I think we learned from the Apostle Paul in this letter that he writes to the church in Philippi. Three things that I want to give us today. Like, I'm not one for topical preaching, okay? I really struggle to do topical preaching. Let me explain what I mean. There's exegetical or exegesis, expositional preaching where we look at the text and we expose the scriptures and allow the scriptures to, 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 to tell you, uh, inform you what the Holy Spirit wants to inform you. And then there's topical sermons where people will develop kind of a big idea or a central theme and then they'll find Bible verses that go along with it to make their point. I, I, I don't, I, I typically, I'm not saying that there's anything inherently wrong with that. That's just not what I prefer because I think we can twist scriptures to make them say some things that they don't say. So as I look at this, as I look at the whole of Paul's life, as I look at the, the text that is the, the book of Philippians that he writes to this church, there are at least three things that I see that I'm going to give some topical ideas because I think that the more we understand the culture and context, the better we are able to understand and apply it to our life. So I'm going to give us three really practical things to take away today, okay? I don't think any of these is a stretch. I think every one of them applies. The first is this. Paul demonstrates all these, by the way. The first is that we need to get real. Like we need to get honest with ourselves. We need to get real and do a reflection of ourselves. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to search us and speak absolute truth. Not relative truth, but absolute truth to our hearts and our minds. Paul looks at the whole of his life and he's really honest about where he was. He doesn't sugarcoat the kind of atrocities that he had been a part of. He doesn't sugarcoat the pride that he saw in himself. He doesn't sugarcoat how he was trying to save himself by works and justify himself by works. He doesn't sugarcoat any of it. He says, I'm a cheap sinner. I'm the worst of all of you. Guys, a part of why we, we aren't changing in our faith or in our families or in our finances is because we're just not being honest with ourselves and where we're at. We're just not being honest with how bad it is. Do you know why I allowed myself to be so fat for so long? And I can call myself fat because I'm talking about me. I used to tell myself all the time, well, I'm a power lifter. And I was. I genuinely was. I, like, I lifted a lot of heavy weight. Stupid weight. And I would justify, well, I need all these calories, 5,000 calories a day, so that I can go to the gym and lift more weights. Do you know what I was doing? Justifying my junk. Like, I wasn't being honest with myself. Do you know the first time I realized I had a problem was when the first time Stacy and I went to get life insurance, I didn't qualify because I was morbidly obese. So I had to have the uh, lady who was doing the labs and the weight and all that stuff come back that afternoon. I had her come back four hours later. This, this is really sad but true. I had to lose 20 pounds. No, 13 pounds, excuse me. 13 pounds. I was 313. I had to be at 300 pounds. So I had her leave, and I said, come back four hours later, and I'll be there. She looked at me. She's, what are you talking about? I said, lady, I wrestled in college. I got this. I put on 50-gallon garbage bags, ziplocked them to myself, like, like uh, saran wrapped them to myself, put on. I, I did what I used to do when I cut weight in high school and college. I went to the sauna, and I came back. I was 297. I lost like 16 pounds in four hours. 
It wasn't healthy, and I don't recommend doing that for anybody. In fact, it's illegal now. You can't even do that in sport. They take your weight at the beginning of the season, and you're only able to lose so much in the course of it. But that's like, I just justified my junk so much. I just explained it away. Can you just be honest that you probably do the same thing? With whatever it is that is keeping you from the fullness of your faith, you're probably just justifying your junk. You're just making excuses. And so the first thing that we can do is get real. Look at this, Psalm 139. I'm going to read two parts of this. Psalm 139, I want to read verse 1 through 6, and then I want to pause and jump to the very end, the last two verses, 23 and 24. This is a Psalm of David. Here's what David says. Oh, Lord, you have examined my heart. So now he's speaking about what God has already done. And you know everything about me. Guess what? The gig's up. You got me. You know everything about me. Verse 2 says, you know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home, you know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. Like he's saying, God, you know all these things, but there is still on verse 23 and 24 an invitation. He's still on the back end of it getting real, getting honest when he says in verse 23, knowing that God knows everything, he still invites the process. Search me, O God, and know my heart. He welcomes what he knows is already true. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out, like, like, like reveal to me anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. If you want to know the fullness of your faith in 2024, let's start by getting really honest. Let's get real with, with where you're at and where you've been. Ask the Lord to search your heart to test you and to, to reveal to you if there's anything that is offensive to him in your life, in the way you speak, in how you treat other people. You know, like I'm so glad for sanctification, aren't you? Because I'm a work in progress. In fact, just 12 hours ago, my wife and I, after uh, my, my son's fiance Riley turned 21 yesterday and we took her out to dinner and, and as we were out to dinner, we had uh, one of my other daughter's friends came with us and I was giving this kid a bad time. And, uh, and my wife, she's like, man, you are really hard on, on him. Why are, you, why are you acting that way? I said, what are you talking about? Like, I'm, he knows I like him. And I looked at this kid in front of him. I said, you know I like you, right? And he goes, uh, yeah. <laughs> I said, like, like, I'm picking on you because I like you. And my, so on the way home, I, I, I'm talking, and I won't let this go. Like, my wife said something. She pointed out that, not everybody appreciates my joking, my humor. In fact, she went so far as to say, most people don't. <laughs> and I said, well, hold on. Kevin Barnhill likes my humor. <laughs> Steve Doolin likes my humor. Jennifer Brown puts up with my humor. Mark Zanotto gives it back. Like I went through this whole list and she said, Andrew, like, just stop it. Like, I know you're being playful and you're, you're, you're trying to pretend that you're this tough guy. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not pretending. I am tough. She said, but, but like, what if you just changed your demeanor a little bit? And that rocked me. Like, I don't even mean to be. She said, you don't even, I don't even think you realize that you're such a big guy and a big personality that a lot of times it can be overbearing and, and, and can be intimidating. Like you're, you're kind of demonstrative. I say, you don't talk to me that way. What does that even mean? <laughs> here, here's, here's, what I'm, here, here's why I even share that story with you. Like it took me allowing the Holy Spirit to speak honestly to my heart last night. And I had to ask this question, why do I act that way? Like, why do I go up to my friend Cole and slap him on the shoulder as hard as I can? Well, because he's huge. And I admire his shoulders. I want shoulders like yours. <laughs> but maybe I don't need to be so aggressive. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm a work in process. So I'm asking the Lord, search me, Lord. Know my heart. Like, I would do anything for anybody. Do they know that? Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point anything out that offends you or anybody else and lead me along the path of everlasting life. And so that's my prayer. And so I give you an open invitation. And I'm serious about this. This isn't, this, isn't, this isn't for display. I mean this. I had no intention of talking about this. If you see behaviors in me that are inconsistent with Christ, even in banter, like I'm not willing to sacrifice my testimony 
for a laugh. If I've ever offended you, publicly I apologize, personally come to me and I'd like to make it right with you personally. And in the future, open invitation. My life is a glass menagerie, I have nothing to hide. If you see any behaviors that are inconsistent with Christ in me, please come and tell me. Don't go to social media, don't go to Blair Gossip, but just come talk to me. Oh, but you're so intimidating. No, I'm not. Just come talk to me. Please. Like, I want to know. And so if my life can be an example of what I think all of our hearts should be, then okay. I'm not better than you. I'm just being really honest about where I'm at in my life. So the second thing that I see from Paul, the first is that we need to get real. Like, we need to get honest. The second is we need to get ready. Are we even ready to change our faith? Are we ready to change our lives? Look at this. I referenced this earlier. James 1, 22 through 25 says, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey it, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself walk away and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. Like we need to get ready. We need to apply the words that we're hearing to our lives. We need to be strategic and we need to be intentional. We need to have a plan, a strategy and accountability in place. We need to be specific about what you hope to accomplish where our faith is concerned. Like do you even know what you want to do where your faith is concerned next year? Here is an example. We need to put a plan in place including studying your Bible. Prayer, fellowship, worship, and practicing your faith. I don't know what that looks like for everybody, but for me in my house, I'm usually the first one up and in our sunroom, I have my devotional Bible set aside there. And before I go to bed, I put coffee in the coffee, in the coffee maker and I'll put my vitamins out and I get ready. So the first thing I do when I get up in the morning is I hit start for the coffee maker. And by the time I, I make my, my, my supplement drink and, 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 and eat my vitamins, the coffee's ready and I pour myself a big full thing of a, a coffee in my Yeti and I go into my sunroom and I sit down just me and, and one of my dogs and, and the, uh, the, 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 the room and I have my Bible, I open it up and I I just say, Lord, this is my time with you right now. I just want to read. I guess I just want to discover you. I just want to know you more. I just want to see you more. And if you want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus, then, then go study Jesus' life. In fact, church, we're going to start a brand new study in 2024. Get this. The shortest gospel is the gospel of Mark, and it's going to take us two years to get through it. I'm so excited about it. You should be excited too. There's going to be some series that we use to break it up. And like this summer, we're going to do a series called Summer in the Psalms. And I've got some cool things that I'm super excited about come September that you're going to want to hear about and know about. But we're going to be studying the gospel of Mark for the next two years. Why? Because in order to follow Jesus, we have to know Jesus. And so we need to be specific about what we want to do when it comes to studying our Bible and prayer. And spending time with other followers of Jesus. Do you know that the best way to, to spend time with other followers of Jesus is actually get in a life group? That's one of the best, most organic ways to do it. Just join a life group. Come to a men's Bible study. Come to a women's Bible study. Hey, if you're a guy, they, the women's Bible study has the best food ever. You come on out. <laughs> Thursdays. And then we need to get ready to practice our faith. Right, to live it out. And then finally, we need to get going. Regardless of life circumstances, we need to press on. Like we need to get going, like Paul says, to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. We need to get going. We need to stop talking about it. We need to stop theorizing about it. We need to stop dreaming about it. You just need to take a step of faith. You just need to step in faith and say, Lord, like all that I am and all that I have, I, I, I give to you. And one of the ways you can practice your faith is by volunteering here. Like, I don't know if you guys know, but our children's ministry last year grew 75% on Sunday mornings alone. We need you to step into the children's ministry and, and help make a difference in their lives. Like, I need you. I've got a lot of kids. And if you don't start volunteering, we're going to open the doors up and let these 163 kids on a Sunday morning come in here with you. In all seriousness, we need you. 
There's a lot of places to volunteer around here. I did a devotion with our staff and our volunteers this morning that actually, starting in Romans 11.36 and then through uh, 12.1, we learned that every gift that we have comes down from God. He gives us the gifts. He sustains us. And all of our gifts are to glorify him and to build others up around us. And if you're not using the gifts God's given you, number one, you're not glorifying God. And number two, you're not helping others be better around you. And so as I think about our faith, we need to get real about our faith, like get honest about it. We need to get ready, come up with a plan, and then we need to get going. We need to take that step of faith this year. Do you know that in, in our church, this actually, um, on one hand, I'm incredibly encouraged. On another hand, I'm really sad. Of the whole of the year, we average, uh, I'm, I'm only giving this to you because it's, th- this number is important. Uh, Throughout the course of a week, including Wednesday nights with youth group, we have 1,800 unique people that come into our, our building. Like 1,800 unique people. On a Sunday, we're right about 1,000. Over the course of a month, we have about 3,000 unique people that attend our church. The whole of the annual budget this last year, of all 3,000 people that attend our church throughout the course of a month, of you make up the entire budget. 83% of the people who call Reach Church home aren't giving anything. I want to tell you, it's not what I want from you. Like what God God is doing with what we have right now is incredible. It's miraculous. But if every one of the 3,000 people just committed to 1% this year, we would have an abundance and an overflow that we wouldn't know what to do with. We would make an impact. But be, I mean, we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars every year on outreach and on missions and on making a difference. Do you know that more than 50% of every dollar that comes into this church goes right back out into ministry? And one of the greatest things that we can do to get going is to, to commit to giving. That, that's, that's really subtle, uh, like, like something just subtle that we, that, we, that we could do, that we could just say, Lord... I'm just going to start with this. Stacy and I, we'd been married for about 10 years. I was pastoring in a church in um, North Carolina. I was a college young adult and high school pastor. And up until that point, my wife and I would just give like 10 bucks here, $50 there. The senior pastor called us and we went to lunch at uh, Ruby Tuesdays and we sat down for lunch and Jeff, uh, Jeff Siebert was his name. He sat down with us and he didn't do it to guilt us or make us feel bad. He didn't read Malachi and talk about how we were bringing a curse on the nations and that we were horrible Christians. Jeff just asked us why we didn't tithe and we explained to him that we lived at the maximum of our means. And he said, if you guys would commit to 1%, just watch what God would do. Stacy and I started with 1% that day. By the end of that year, I think we were at like 3 or 4%. And since 2000 and, Stacy, give me the number, 2006, 2006, we've been at 10% or more every single year. And we have never been without. God has radically blessed us the whole time. You know, we've even wrestled with how do we encourage people to give here? One of our elders and one of our staff members said, let's do a money back guarantee. Like if you give for 30 days and God doesn't bless you, we'll give you your money back. I don't want to, like, like, <laughs> like I, 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 can I tell you why I don't want to do that? Because giving is an act of worship and a byproduct of obedience. And I, I would never go to God and say, Lord, Like, I want your sanctification and salvation as long as it aligns with what I want it to look like. And God doesn't negotiate that with me. Hey, Andrew, my salvation is only good if you do this. So can I just challenge you not to give out a compulsion or guilt? And and for the record, too, look at, if I could have every one of your attentions right here. You ask any of my staff members, not the least of which is Mark Zanato and Marilyn Teach, uh, Kevin Barnhill, who's the chairman of our elder board, and Dane Livermore, who's vice chairman. I don't know a single soul in this church and what they give. I don't even know what my staff give. I know what my wife and I give. I ask that I be given a notification that my staff is giving because it's important that we lead the way in all things. Why do I tell you that? Because I don't think any different of you because of what you do or don't give because it's not about me. It's not what I want from you. It's what I want for you. I want you to trust Jesus in every area of your life. I want you to trust Jesus not only with your faith but your finances. And I want you to see what God will do do you know in the Bible that this is the only time that God says, test me in this, finances, and see if I don't throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out an abundance on your life you don't even know anything about? Like, we need to get going. In our prayer life, we need to get going. 
When it comes to worship, we're going to close out a song here in just a moment. Worship team, why don't you come on out? Alyssa, would you just put that microphone stand right there, please, so I can grab a guitar in a minute and play with you and sing with you guys. We're going to get a chance to worship God. Stop standing there so stoic and allow the, the word and the music to, to impact your heart and then sing these words with us. We're going to be talking about how great our God is, that it's his breath in our lungs. And because of his life that we have life. So I just want to encourage you to get going with your worship. You don't have to be the best. I'm not the best vocalist. You don't have to be the best vocalist. But we get to come together to worship him that way. And one final thing that we're going to get going with. As you came in today, hopefully you received one of these cups. This is a communion cup. If you didn't get one, you can raise your hand right now and uh, our ushers will bring you a cup. Just hold it up and they'll come find you. Uh, we're going to take communion today. Communion is a, a spiritual act of reflection. It's looking at what Jesus has done in our lives. You know, the same guy, Paul, who wrote this letter in Philippi, he writes the church in Corinth and he says, for I give to you what I received on the night that Jesus, he was betrayed. He took a common cup and he said, guys, this is, this is my blood. And he took some bread and he said, this is my body. It's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So when we do this communion act, it, it really is symbolic. It's much more, though, than just a wafer, which is actually at the bottom. There's two tabs, one on the bottom. The bottom tab, the smaller one, has got the wafer and the top tab. If you tear that back uh, gently, it's, it's got the juice. This is an opportunity for you just to reflect on Jesus. That Jesus loves you. That Jesus came, lived, died, rose again, and is coming back. And one of the ways that we get to worship him is with the sacrament. And one of the sacraments we have, one of the two, is through communion. Where we just get to reflect on it and say, God, thank you. Thank you for your love in my life. Thank you for giving your life for me. Now, Lord, as we get ready to take communion, I pray that we would reflect on the whole of who you are and how you love us and that this would be a response of worship. That as we take this bread, that we remember the body that was given for us. And as we drink the juice, that we would remember the blood, the new covenant that was poured out for us. And that we would, Lord, that you would know how much we love you and we appreciate you and we celebrate you and we give this time to you. And I pray this in your name, Jesus.